So today we're going to talk about the Knesset Hagadola, this great assembly. Often it's referred to as Anshei Knesset Hagadola, the men of the great assembly. Now, the men of the great assembly were perhaps the most impactful group in Judaism, or the group that had the greatest impact on Judaism and Jewish practice other than Moses. So it is one of the most consequential groups or periods um, in Jewish history. The Tosefta, which is a um, addition to the Mishnah or um, written about in the 200s, writes that the Torah could have been given by Ezra, the leader, the Torah could have been given by Ezra, the leader of the great assembly, um, but it had already been given by Moses, so it was too late. Um, the Midrash also tells us that with Ezra, with the great assembly, we began a new Judaism, where Moses, David, Solomon, Chizkiyahu, um, Hezekiah, um, were all leaders of an old Judaism, while Ezra and um, later leaders, Hillel and um, Rabbi Akiva, were leaders of a new Judaism. So we could almost split Judaism to pre-Great Assembly, pre-Knesset Haggadola, and post-Knesset Haggadola. The impact of the Knesset Haggadola, of the Great Assembly, was so great, as we will see, um, that it almost, we can split Judaism historically to a two periods, the old prior to the Great Assembly and the new post the Great Assembly. So who was this Great Assembly? So the Great Assembly was a Sanhedrin, as we'll see, a Supreme Council, um, or a High Court, a Supreme Council of Judaism, that was led by Ezra. Ezra, known as Ezra HaSofer, Ezra the Scribe, or Ezra HaKohen, Ezra, he was a Kohen as well. Um, there's some debate as to whether he was a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, um, or not but he was definitely a Kohen, and he's called Hasofer. Generally in scripture, um, it's thought that people that are termed by the name Hasofer were members or leaders of the um, Bezdin HaGadol, the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Council. So Ezra led the, arrived, so Ezra led this great assembly. Um, he arrived in the land of Israel one year after the completion of the Second Temple, in our counting in 3413 from creation, which would be the equivalent of 346 BCE. Now I should mention that this is according to our Jewish tradition. Um, there is some variation in how to count um, this period of the second building of the second temple. Um, and we did a class some time ago about Jewish chronology um, where we touched on some of the variations over here. But according to our countings, it would be about 346 when Ezra arrived in the land of Israel. Um, and that would be the time that the great assembly began. And it generally is thought to have lasted until the Greek conquest of Persia, which according to our traditions was in the year 3448 or 311 BCE. Um, 311 BC, which would be... Um, a couple years after it's normally, after you would normally see it in the history books, but our Jewish tradition is that it was in 311 BC.
So um, this was so this was during what we can call the very beginning of the Second Temple. It started a year after the Second Temple was built, and um, it lasted for about 35 years. Now, so in order to understand the Knesset Haggadah, the Great Assembly, and its impact, it's important to understand the history of that period. So the first temple that had been built by King Solomon and stood for over 400 years had been destroyed in the year, uh, had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor. Some years later, um, the Babylonian empire is swallowed up or conquered by the Persians and Medes, um, led by Darius and his son-in-law Cyrus. And when Cyrus becomes emperor in our Jewish counting in 3390 or 369 BC, according to the, our Jewish traditions, so that one of the first edicts um, of Cyrus is he allows the Jews who were exiled in Babylon and had really spread out throughout the Persian Empire, he allows the Jews to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So the Jewish leader at the time, Zerubbabel, he was the Reish Gelotah, the king of the Jews in Babylon, a grandson of, from the house of David, a grandson of one of the last kings of Israel. Um, Zerubbabel, together with um, Yehoshua, who was a Kohen and grandson of the final high priest, Kohen Gadol, um, in the, um, in the first temple, together lead 40,000 Jews from Babylon to go back to Israel and begin the building of the second temple. So they go back to Israel. Israel at the time was mostly desolate. There was a group called Samaritans, um, or Kutim, as they're called by our sages, um, who were um, uh, uh, Shomronim, uh, sometimes they're called, who were, um, who had been non-Jews that had, from Babylon, that had been brought to Israel when Jews had been exiled by um, the, uh, earlier by the Assyrians. And um, these, this group was a small group, but lived in Israel at the time. They had adopted much of Judaism, but not entirely. Um, then there were other non-Jews um, that had settled in Israel at the time but it was mostly a desolate land. It had been mostly uninhabited with very, very few inhabitants during this, the 52-year period until the, the Jews went back. So these, this large group of Jews go back to Jerusalem, which had been totally desolate. They rebuild the city. They begin building the temple. However, they only, the rebuilding lasts a couple years after the death of Cyrus, his successor, Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus in Hebrew, forces them to stop the building of the temple. They're forced to stop rebuilding it. And so for some 18 years, um, they, there is this community in Israel. Um, some may have gone back, but many of them remained in Israel, settling there in Jerusalem and in other towns in Israel, but they are unable to build the temple since the Persian emperor had forbade it. After 18 years after the temple building had been stopped, after they had originally started the temple building, um, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah encouraged the Jews 
to continue building the temple, restart the building without permission. And they do so, they continue building the temple without permission, and they complete it in the year 3412 or 347 BCE. It was one year later that Ezra led a very large number of Jews from Babylon and elsewhere and elsewhere in, in, uh, in the Persian Empire back to Israel to strengthen the fledgling Jewish community that was there. So the period that we're discussing, the beginning of the Second Temple and the Men of the Great Assembly is going to begin when Ezra arrives in the land of Israel. Now we should be clear that the period of the, the early Second Temple, this period that we're speaking about, has very little clear record. We have two books of our scripture, Ezra and Nehemiah, which are, we generally counted as a single book, that discusses this period. And um, we also have the book of Haggai, books of Haggai and Zechariah, short books of prophecy that discuss this period, as well as scattered statements in the Talmud and other works of our oral tradition. So there's a lot of unknowns about the history of this period, but we're going, and historians debate many of the details, but we will at least offer a hypothesis um, of what's accepted by many historians as to what has happened, what happened during that period based on the sources that we have. So Judaism, since the days of Moses, had been led by a body of religious scholars known as the Bet Din Haggadot, the Great Court, or the Great Council. This Great Council was the supreme legal body of Judaism. They decided all the laws. Whenever there was any questions, they voted on it. They were led by a Nasi, a president of the Sanhedrin, and the president of the Sanhedrin was effectively the religious leader of Israel. Um, throughout Tanakh, we have scattered scripture, we have scattered references to the Sanhedrin, to the Supreme Council, um, although we aren't given much details of it. Um, later, it becomes known by the Greek name Sanhedrin, which is the Greek word for council, and that's the name that stuck during the Second Temple period. Alongside this Beddin, alongside this Supreme Council, was also a yeshiva. There were many, we always had yeshivas, we always had schools um, of higher learning, but the greatest yeshiva always sat alongside the Sanhedrin with hundreds of leading scholars, um, and um, that would be taught by the members of the Sanhedrin, and often the, the students of this yeshiva would take part in the debate of the council. So the 71 council, while well, the council had 71 members with voting rights that would actually vote in decisions, there were hundreds more that would be involved in the debate um, and in studying alongside the leadership. Under this Sanhedrin or under this Supreme Council were a whole network of different Jewish councils all across the land of Israel or later in exile across the Persian Empire. Um, but under the Supreme Council would be the entire Jewish leadership, local leadership would be answerable to this Sanhedrin. Um, when a member of the Sanhedrin would die or have to retire, they would vote, the members of the Sanhedrin themselves would vote in new members 
um, as necessary. So now there was a Sanhedrin throughout the second, first temple period that sat, their seat where they sat was uh, next to the temple, um, right next to the temple, the Sanhedrin sat along with their yeshiva in Jerusalem. When the temple was destroyed, or actually a, in a couple years before the temple was destroyed, the entire Sanhedrin, the entire Supreme Council, with most of the leading scholars, were exiled to Babylon. And they settled in the town of Naharda'a. You may recall from our class on the Jewish community in Babylon, that became essentially the capital of Judaism in Babylon, and that's where the Supreme Council had settled. When Zerubbabel was allowed by Cyrus, when Cyrus gave permission to rebuild the Second Temple and for Jews to go back to Israel, and Zerubbabel and Yehoshua led Jews back to Israel, most Jews did not bother going. Only 40,000 Jews went. There were possibly a couple million Jews living at the time. Um, but only 40,000 actually went. Um, the uh, the uh, Sanhedrin, though, the religious leadership did not go. They remained in Babylon. They remained in Naharda'a. So though Zerubbabel and Yehoshua had gone to lead the rebuilding of the temple in Israel, the Sanhedrin, the supreme leadership, um, and all the religious leadership remained in Babylon. Why did they remain in Babylon? The Talmud tells us that the president of the Sanhedrin at the time was Baruch ben Neria, who had been a disciple of Jeremiah um, and um, is mentioned many times in the book of Jeremiah. Baruch was very old at the time. He was the leading disciple of Jeremiah before the destruction of the temple 52 years earlier. So he would now be definitely well over 70 years old, if not even much, much older than that. He was very old and frail. He was unable to make the trip. The Supreme Council, the Sanhedrin, did not want to go to Israel. Then trips would take a long time. You'd go by foot or by wagon. Um, the Supreme Council did not want to leave their president behind. And so therefore, they all chose to stay in Babylon rather than go to Israel with the rebuilding of the temple. Alongside them, all of the religious leadership, therefore, chose to stay in Babylon. It was only 19 years later, uh, sorry, it was only um, 26 years later, um, and Baruch would now be extremely old, um, well over 100. Um, it was only 26 years later when Baruch ben Neria died, a year after the temple was finally completed that the new president, Ezra, who was elected as the new president of the Sanhedrin, led the entire Sanhedrin, along with most of the Jewish scholars and the members of the yeshivas and many members of the different Jewish councils, along with a very, very large number of Jews from all over Babylon back to Israel. We are told that still most Jews remained in Babylon, and Babylon throughout the Second Temple period would have a larger Jewish population than the land of Israel. But he, it's not clear how many people went with Ezra, but it appears to have been a very, very large number accompanied him. Um, there's about a thousand that are listed in the book of Ezra, 
um, but uh, it appears that a very, very large number went with Ezra on this big trip. Ezra got, for such a large trip with such a large number of people, he needed permission from the emperor. He got permission from the emperor, who was Darius at the time, um, second Darius, Baryavash um, in Hebrew. He got permission from the emperor, who gave a lot of money to help support their trip um, and to donate to the temple um, to help um, refurbish the, or to help um, make the temple nicer. And um, he strongly supported their trip back to Israel. So when Ezra and his group came to, um, 26 years after they had started this, the building of the temple, one year after the temple was actually, um, uh, one year after, sorry, um, um, sorry, 24 years after they had started the building of the temple, one year after the temple had been completed, Ezra and his group moved back to Israel. The spiritual center has now moved from Babylon to Israel, and it will remain the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, and the spiritual center of Judaism would now remain in Israel for the next 500 years, until 500 years later in the third century due to Roman persecution, the center of Judaism moves back to Babylon. So when Ezra comes, Ezra discovers a fledgling Jewish community there. The re remnants of the original Jews that had come up some 24 years earlier with Zerubbabel and Yehoshua. And he finds that the community is sorely lacking in religious leadership. Just before Ezra came, the leader, Zerubbabel, had been recalled back to Babylon, was forced back to Babylon by the emperor or he may have gone back on his own, it's unclear, um, but the leaders of Babel had left. And many Jews had, had in Israel, in the land of Israel, though they had rebuilt the temple and started the service, many were very lax in fulfillment of the commandments. And worst of all, many Jewish men had married non-Jewish women, had married out of the faith, including many prominent Jews, um, including the children, the sons of Yehoshua, Kohen Gadol, Yehoshua, the high priest, um, had married non-Jewish women. And much of the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, book of Ezra and Nehemiah deal with Ezra and later Nehemiah, who was a leader that came up after Ezra, and um, led, they led together, deals and became the governor, was appointed by the Persian emperor as the governor of Jerusalem. Um, and much of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah deal with Ezra and Nehemiah's campaigns against intermarriage in Israel, trying to break up um, marriages between Jews and non-Jews and, and trying to stop the problem of intermarriage. So it was at this point when Ezra came um, to the Jewish community led by the Sanhedrin that he establishes the Knesset Hagadola, the Great Assembly. So there, who were, what was this great assembly? There are various numbers given as to how many members there were of the great assembly. The Talmud tells us that there were 120 members of the great assembly. There are other numbers given elsewhere. Um, the um, Jerusalem Talmud says 86. Um, there are other numbers given elsewhere. It appears that originally the 
great assembly began with 120 members, and then over time, as people died, um, their numbers were, or people, um, people retired, their numbers were depleted. But they began with 120 members. Interestingly, today, the modern Israeli Knesset was both named after, with the name Knesset, uh, which means assembly, uh, was named after the great assembly of Ezra, as well as the number of um, parliamentarians were chosen um, to be 120 because that was the number of Ezra's Knesset Hagadola of Ezra's great assembly. And just as then when they came back to Israel, they had built this assembly of 120 members. So the parliament of Israel was, is supposed to be representative, at least, of that assembly. I'm not sure they live up to that, but um, at least they're supposed to be. Um, so why was there, some, some historians think that this Knesset Hagadola, this great assembly functioned alongside but separate from the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council. Um, however, um, from the sources it actually appears that the Knesset Hagadola was the Sanhedrin, was the Supreme Council, but it was an expanded Sanhedrin. Generally, the Sanhedrin has 71 members. Here, the Sanhedrin was expanded by Ezra to include 120 members, much more than the original 71. Why was the Sanhedrin expanded? And so we don't know. We, have, we don't have any sources that tell us why the Sanhedrin would have been expanded. Um, however, a modern scholar, Ruben Margolis, suggested that the Sanhedrin that originally came with Ezra um, from Babylon up to Jerusalem was only a rump-sized Sanhedrin. It only had a handful of members. Why? There's a rule that ordination or smicha, not the ordination that we have today, the smicha that we have today, but the ordination that is required to become a member of the Sanhedrin can only be given in the land of Israel. So you can only give smicha in the land of Israel. So when Jews were forced to leave the land of Israel, um, with the destruction of the first temple, the members of the Sanhedrin all moved to Babylon. However, they were not able to give smicha ordination to new young scholars that were, could be appointed as members of the Sanhedrin since they were outside the land of Israel. They were unable to give smicha. As a result, and we know that that's actually why the Sanhedrin was eventually disbanded um, about um, 1700 years ago. The Sanhedrin was disbanded in the 300s because due to Roman persecution, scholars were no longer able to study in Israel. The yeshivas were closed. Once the yeshivas were closed, they could no longer give smicha in the land of Israel. Although there were many yeshivas outside of Israel, they were unable to continue the Sanhedrin because smicha, ordination for this to be ordained, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, was only possible in the land of Israel. So because of that, over the um, 
over the 76 years or so from the destruction of the temple until Ezra went back, most of the original members of the Sanhedrin had died. There were only a handful of members that either had somehow gone to Israel and gotten smicha there possibly during this period, or very, very old members that um, still were alive from and had gotten smicha, were now well past 100 years old, but had gotten smicha before the destruction of the temple. We know in the books of, um, uh, in the, uh, we know in scripture it tells us that there were people alive um, that had seen the first temple. In Haggai it tells us there were people alive that had seen the first temple um, around when they built the second temple 70 years later. So there were people still alive, um, but they were very, very old at the time. So it was only a, there were only a handful of Rebruva Margolis posits that there are, were only a handful of actual members of the Sanhedrin in the days of Ezra. So now, having come to the land of Israel um, and being able to give smicha, and presumably the first thing Ezra did when he came to Israel, was give smicha to dozens of new potential scholars, new scholar, scholars that had not received the smicha simply because they were outside of Israel, but were deserving of the smicha and should become members of the Sanhedrin. So he was now able to give smicha to dozens and dozens and dozens of scholars. So he was essentially um, creating a Sanhedrin mostly from scratch. Normally, one member of a Sanhedrin was a member, had 71 members. If one member died, they would immediately vote in a new one. They never voted in more than a handful of members at a time at most. Here, they were essentially creating an entire Sanhedrin again from scratch. Um, and so, as it um, and so um, Rabbi Margolis suggests that Ezra was concerned about the legitimacy of this Sanhedrin. Since if it would only have 71 members, scholars that for whatever reason were left out would disagree with its rulings and declare it illegitimate. Particularly given, as we'll soon see, the great um, uh, decisions that had to be made and the important changes that they were planning to make and given the, the importance, Ezra wanted this new Sanhedrin to have full um, support of all of the Jewish scholars at the time. And so therefore, he chose all 120 of the recognized leading scholars at the time. That was the number of leading scholars that he had given smicha to, um, who were all worthy of being in this Sanhedrin. And he brought them all into the Sanhedrin in order to give it the maximum legitimacy. Right, that's a, uh, that's a, a hypothesis. We don't know if that reason is true or not, but definitely very possible. Any questions before we go continue? Bart? I have a question. Bart, you had a question? You have to unmute yourself. Yeah, uh, two questions. One is, uh, maybe you covered this, but uh, where was the Sanhedrin, uh, uh, where is it, um, where was it authorized? It was it in the Torah? And yes, then, it's in this uh, week's Parsha. That's why we're talking about okay, it. Today. So it's authorized in the, in the Torah. God tells then, Moses to gather 70 elders okay. and um, bring them, and uh, they will be his first Sanhedrin. With Moses as the president, there are 71 members. 
Okay, and then where does it say uh, that we shouldn't have a, uh, a Sanhedrin now? Where is that, does it? It doesn't say that we shouldn't have a Sanhedrin now. Rather, um, rather what happened was the, the rule is, and this is part of our oral tradition, that you can only ordain or um, certify members of the Sanhedrin in the land of Israel. You can only get the certification called smicha that it takes to become a member in Israel. Outside of Israel, you are not allowed to certify people with the, um, with the role of being, that will allow smicha, that will allow them to become a member of the Sanhedrin. So once, the, when the last yeshiva in Israel closed, and there were no more scholars in Israel, um, it was impossible to certify people. Well, but you have plenty of scholars there now. You do, but you can, it must be passed. Only somebody who has smicha already can certify somebody else. <laughs> it was lost. It's now lost. We can no longer create it. Now, whether or not there's a possibility to recreate it from scratch when nobody has it is an issue of great debate, and we address that in great detail in our class on the Sanhedrin, and um, whoever likes, I can send them the recording. I don't think we have it yet on um, uploaded to the podcast, but I will actually. I'll, I'll try to upload it to the podcast. Um, but um, yeah, so there's some debate as to whether we can have it today. But in reality, we have not had the Sanhedrin since it was disbanded some 1,700 years ago. Lewis. Uh, Rabbi, you mentioned uh, the estimate of uh, Jewish population in Babylon of 2 million. Yes. Were you meaning Babylon or were you meaning the empire that we know from Hoduad Kush, from Ethiopia to India? We don't know an estimate. We have no way of knowing. I, I didn't mention a number. I just said it may have been in the millions. We don't know the actual number of Jews. Um, we don't know. We have very little by way of the total number of Jews. The one number we have is 40,000 that went up with Zerubbabel. It appears a very much larger number went up with Ezra. Um, although some suggest that 40,000 may have been those that went up with Ezra. Definitely a majority stayed in Babylon and there were Jews living in Persia as far away as Afghanistan, India, and also to the west in, in um, Egypt. Tunisia and other places as well at the time. Um, so most Jews didn't live in Israel. The total numbers we don't know. We have better numbers later toward the end of the Second Temple period where we know there were a couple million Jews living in Israel. Um, their numbers probably grew gradually over time. Um, but there's no reason not to believe. The numbers were definitely in the hundreds of thousands, if not in the low millions. But, but we don't have any way of knowing whether there were 200,000 or 5 million. It could have been anywhere in between. I don't think we have an accurate way of measuring that. Do we, do we know whether Jewish communities from other places were drawn to Israel as the Second Temple was built, like we have Israel today from 105 different countries? We know that Jews went with Ezra at the same time. When, uh, under Ezra's encouragement, he didn't only take a group from Babylon, where he came from, but from all over the Persian Empire, um, where Jews lived. Um, so Jews went from everywhere. Um, it's almost certain that there was movement of Jews between Israel and the diaspora um, through both, both ways. 
um, throughout the Second Temple period, Jews moving to Israel and Jews moving away from Israel, depending on the political situation in different places. Um, so, I mean, that's almost certain. We believe that Jews lived in Egypt at the time. Uh, we actually, we know, certainly we found evidence that Jews lived in Egypt at the time. It's widely believed that Jews lived in Tunisia at the time. Um, and um, they probably lived really all over, and this would have all been part of the Persian Empire, they probably lived all over the Persian Empire at the time. Um, and where they came from and came to Israel, we don't know the details. Okay, I have questions. Susan, yes. Thank you. Um, is there a, a city still in Iraq? Iraq is what Babylon used to be, right? Yes. Is, okay, so that religious center that was in Iraq, mm -hmm. is that city still existent today? Yes, yes. The, the religious center in Judaism uh, of Judaism was Naharda. Later, after Naharda was destroyed in the early 200s, it moved to Pompidita, which is apparently very close to Naharda. Um, both of them are right next to modern-day Fallujah. Oh, so um, do they have any kind of artifacts or anything like that there? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Um, we did a class on the history of the Jews of Babylon a couple months ago. It's on the podcast. Um, and then we spoke great detail of the whole history. Um, but I don't believe we have any artifacts of Jews, of ancient Jews in Babylon. Um, okay. That's really, yeah. It's really, I guess, a subject of its own. Right, right, sorry. And the other question I have sure. is, why would Darius support the Jews? Sorry? Why would Darius support the Jews? That's a very good question. Um, in one place, the Talmud says, although this is somewhat unclear historically, in one place, the Talmud says that his mother was Jewish. She was the famous Queen Esther. So that might be a good reason to support the Jews. Um, Cyrus was convinced that um, God ordained him as emperor. Cyrus was the first one to support the Jews. Um, Cyrus was convinced that God ordained him as emperor with the purpose of supporting Israel and helping Israel rebuild the temple. Um, he really believed that, that, that God had ordained him for that. Um, and uh, there was actually a prophecy many years earlier by the prophet Isaiah addressed to Cyrus. Um, that mentions him by name, and um, he took it to heart and believed that was his mission. Um, Darius may have also felt the same way, um, or perhaps um, Darius had some political calculations. You never know when it comes to emperors. Um, ultimately, we really don't know. Okay, thank you. Sure. So, um, who were the members of the Great Assembly. So we know the leader of the Great Assembly was Ezra. Ezra was the leader of the Great Assembly. Um, he would have been its president. Uh, presumably he's called Hasofer the scribe, um, denoting that he was a leader. After his death, he was succeeded by Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon HaTzadik is described in Perkei Avot and Ethics of Our Fathers as being Mishire Knesset Hagdola, from the remainders of the Knesset Hagdola. In other words, he was one of the last of the early of the members of the Knesset Hagadola, and he becomes leader after um, president of the Great Assembly after Ezra. Um, we know from the midrash that he was also a high priest, um, which again, if Ezra was or not, is debated. But it would have been unusual for a leader of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Council to be to be a high priest. Um, generally, they were separate roles. 
Um, Maimonides and others assume that many other Jewish leaders that we know from that period were also members, including the prophets, Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three prophets from whom we have prophecy, um, were members, although they're not explicitly mentioned. Um, as well as he assumes that in addition to Ezra and Nehemiah, who was appointed by the, um, by the emperor as governor of Jerusalem and Judea, um, as well as Mordechai um, from the Purim story, as well as Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah, famous as um, officers of King Nebuchadnezzar, who were thrown, who, whom he threw into a furnace, and they miraculously survived after he had, um, after they had refused to bow down to an idol, as well as Daniel from the famous book of Daniel. Um, so I wanted these lists all of those. In the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 10, it describes what's called a shtar amana, a document of faith, declaring there are the faith in God and commitment to God's commandments in great, great detail. Um, throughout, it, it, it goes through over through two chapters of Nehemiah, this document of faith sign, signed by all of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem at the time. And it lists, in Nehemiah, it lists 83 leaders that were signed on this document, including Nehemiah himself, who was the governor, as well as another 82 leaders that signed this document. Nehemiah himself, as well as Daniel, are listed in this document. None of the other individuals mentioned um, by Maimonides are actually listed explicitly in this document, um, although possibly they're listed by other names. Um, it's also not clear that the Daniel listed by Nehemiah is the same Daniel as the Daniel from the book of Daniel. Um, that's somewhat unclear. But um, anyway, it's, uh, it does appear that these 83 Jewish leaders who signed this document were all members of the Sanhedrin, um, at least it appears so from the Talmud. Um, why were there only 83 signing the document and not more, um, not 120? Possibly by that point, the Great Assembly had started with 120 members, but over time had been depleted. And as um, Rabbi Margolis suggests, that as it was depleted over time, as people died or um, were no longer able to serve on the Sanhedrin Supreme Council, they did not vote in new ones. Um, until the number got down to 71, and only then continued to keep it, um, as had always been since the days of Moses, continued to keep it at 71. So at the time that the document of faith um, was signed in Nehemiah, there were only 83 leaders, and the 83 leaders listed would have been the members at the time. So what exactly did this great assembly do that makes them so great? and allowed them to make such a great impact on Judaism. So we have bits and pieces that tell us what the Great Assembly did. And it appears, first and foremost, they set about establishing the religious structure in Israel. Remember, the Jewish community in Israel was essentially brand new. They had just arrived in Israel um, uh, from Babylon. There was no community structure. So they set about establishing the religious structure in Israel. 
Um, we know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that Ezra and Nehemiah themselves, and presumably the men of the Great Assembly, work to end intermarriage. Um, Nehemiah speaks about it, they, they, how they encourage Shabbos observance, of which many people had been lax, separation of the master, of the tithes, um, and many other um, fulfillment of the holidays, celebrating the holidays properly, and many other commandments that are described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In Perkei Avot, in Ethics of Our Fathers, it tells us that the men of the Great Assembly said three things. Be careful in judgment, raise many students, and build fences around the Torah. So we can assume that what Perkei Avot meant, meant was, what the book of Perkei Avot meant is, that these were the main things that the uh, Great Assembly, the Knesset Hagadol, were involved in. Firstly, um, firstly, they speak about being careful in justice. They built a judicial system across Israel, as there had been during the first temple period, a legal system, courts and councils to be able to judge and legislate. Um, secondly, they speak of having many students. They built an education system, a system of schools, of primary schools, of yeshivas, of advanced schools for advanced study. Um, again, a new community. Um, they had to build the education system. And finally, they building a fence around the Torah means making laws or legislating laws to help protect the Torah and Judaism. And we know um, of many, many laws described in um, the Talmud and other early sources that tell us many laws that were are attributed to the men of the Great Assembly, rabbinic laws that were legislated by the Sanhedrin. Um, the Sanhedrin does have the authority to legislate and create their own rules um, in Judaism, and all Jews are obligated to follow the rules made by the Sanhedrin. One of the most important contributions of the Sanhedrin was writing and finalizing the Jewish scripture, or the Tanakh. First, they were told that the Knesset HaGadol of the Great Assembly wrote the books of Yechezkel, Ezekiel, which was based on Ezekiel's prophecy, but they actually edited the book. The book of Daniel, which was based on Daniel's visions, but they wrote and edited the book, as well as the book of Esther, which describes the Purim story, which most of them would have lived through because it happened shortly before um, Ezra came up to Israel. They also organized the book of Tre Asar, which is a book, a collection of 12 short prophecies, um, or uh, uh, 12 short prophecies that they put together. Some of those prophecies were ancient or were from hundreds of years earlier. Three of them were written by, um, or were composed by members of, this, of the Knesset Hagdol of the assembly, Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi. They also, in addition to putting together these four books, they also chose which books should be included in the Nevi'im, in the collection of books of prophets, and which books should be included in Ketuvim, which books should be included in our writing. So in addition to the Torah, the five books of Moses, they chose eight books to be put in the book of in the Nevi'im, in the books of prophets, and 11 books to be included in the Ketuvim, in the books of writing. Together, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, the acronym for that is Tanakh, and that is the Hebrew scripture. Altogether, five books of Moses, eight books of prophets, and um, 11 books of writings, 
of Ketuvim, together 24 books of our Hebrew scripture. All other books, and there were other books at the time, were excluded. The other books that were excluded, the other books that existed at the time, written perhaps in similar style to our scriptures, that were excluded, some of them we still have. They did not survive most, main, mostly in their uh, Hebrew form, original Hebrew form, since Jews did not care much for them after they were excluded from the Tanakh, but some of them did survive in Greek and ended up making it into the um, Christian Bible, but they're not part of our Torah. They also, in addition to that, they edited the Torah um, from discrepancies. Um, discrepancies may have arisen over the year, in particular letters um, in the Torah, exactly how to spell certain words. They edited the Torah. There were some Torahs that weren't entirely accurate, and they edited it um, to make sure it was accurate. They also, there were discrepancies in the vowels and punctuation. We know that in a Torah scroll, there's no vowels and there's no punctuation. And so um, the Knesset HaGadola um, began writing um, what was called um, Chumashim, or books, um, not like the Torah that just had the words itself, but books with the vowels and the writing. And um, these um, had, and here, we, and that way they made sure that we had knew the accurate pronunciation of each word, as well as the accurate punctuation of these, each word. They also brought back what the Talmud says was the original Hebrew alphabet called Ashurit. In um, they brought it back, and it was, um, there, at the time, there were multiple Hebrew scripts, including the script known as Libona, um, or ancient Hebrew, sometimes it's called Ivri, or ancient Hebrew script. Um, and they required, and the, we believe that the Ashurit um, although both scripts were widely in use at the time, and perhaps um, Libona was more widely used in the days of Ezra, um, but he insisted that the Torah always be written, as well as Tefillin and Mezuzahs, only be written in Ashurit in the original script that God had told, had given the Ten Commandments in, had written the Ten Commandments on the tablets in, and that Moses' original Torah was written in, and they also defined exactly how to write each letter, and that is the way we write Hebrew still today. So great impact. They, they finalized that They wrote a number of books of Tanakh. They finalized the Tanakh, edited it. The Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures that we have today, um, are, from, are from the Knesset HaGadola, from the Great Assembly. Another important contribution of the Knesset HaGadol of the Great Assembly was the prayer system. Prior to the Knesset HaGadol, prior to the Great Assembly, the Torah gives a mitzvah to pray. God commanded us to pray. But there was no set time or wording for the prayer. There was no set structure for prayer. You can pray however you liked, whenever you liked. However, when Jews came from Babylon, they no longer spoke Hebrew. In Babylon, they began to speak Aramaic as their spoken language. Jews now, in the, that came back to Israel, continued to speak Aramaic. And Aramaic became the spoken language of the Jews for many, many years after that. Throughout the Second Temple period, Jews did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. They still studied Hebrew. 
because they needed to know to read the Torah, but they did not speak Hebrew. That was not their spoken language. And so as a result, Jews had trouble composing prayers to God in Hebrew, the language God's preferred language. And so, as a res and so because of that, the Knesset HaGadola, the great assembly, composed prayers and built a structure. They said that every person should pray three times a day. Every Jewish man, at least, should pray three times a day. Should pray four times on Shabbat and festivals and five times on Yom Kippur. And they composed most of our basic, basic prayers. Um, the prayers, most of the prayers as we have today, were composed by the Knesset HaGadola, by the Great Assembly. They further said that we should pray in groups of 10 men, since God's presence can be found when 10 Jews gather together. We know God's presence is there, and so therefore we should try to pray with what's called a minyan, or a quorum of 10, um, 10 men. Um, the rule of prayer that the men of the Great Assembly made was just for men. Women were not required to pray three times a day. They also encouraged us to build special places in each town that would be dedicated for prayer that we now know as the synagogue, or what was called in Hebrew, Beta Knesset. So our entire prayer system, the times for prayer, the wordings of the prayer, the quorum, the minyan, the synagogue, was all set by Ezra. Along with that, they said, we should read the Torah three times a week, Mondays, Thursdays, Shabbat, as well as Shabbat afternoon, as well as on special days. And so the entire prayer structure as we know it was all put in place by the men of the Great Assembly. Another great contribution of the Knesset HaGdola was blessings. They said, before you eat anything, make a blessing. Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech alam. Blessed you, God, our King, King of the universe, and thank God for every single thing you eat. Different types of food have different blessings, all composed and created by the men of the great assembly. They said, not only when you eat, when you smell something, make a blessing. Not, uh, they said, after you eat. Now, the Torah already commands us that after we eat a meal and are satisfied, we should bless God. And the Birkat HaMazon, the blessing after a meal, was already composed much earlier. However, the men of the Great Assembly said, every time you eat, even if it's not a meal, so as long as you've eaten an olive, the, uh, the amount, the size of an olive, you should say a blessing after you eat. And they composed blessings after, to say after eating any food. They went further. They composed blessings to say on certain occasions, to express our thanks to God on different occasions or for different events that happen to us. They also composed blessings to do when you do a mitzvah. Every time you do a mitzvah, before you do the mitzvah, you should always say a blessing. And we do, before we do a mitzvah, we always thank God for giving us the opportunity to do a mitzvah. They also created a, many ceremonies in Judaism. They created, a, the beginning of Shabbos, the, to, the Torah tells us that we must declare Shabbos holy at the beginning of Shabbos and declare its end at the end of Shabbos. The men of the Great Assembly said, composed exactly what we should say, the Kiddush, when we declare Shabbos holy, and that we should say it holding a cup of wine, which we should drink at the end. They also said when we declare the end of Shabbos, they composed 
what we should say at the end of Shabbos and said we should also do it holding a cup of wine and drink a cup of wine at the end. They created Havdalah. They also composed um, ceremonies for different occasions. Um, special ceremony at the bris, at the circumcision, what to say. What to say at a wedding. Um, special blessings before the Kiddushan, before the marriage. Um, Sheva Brachot, seven blessings at the end, um, all composed by the men of the great assembly. They composed um, things that we should say, blessing and things we should say at a funeral. So all the different rituals and special occasions, again, all composed by the men of the great assembly. Some historians believe, furthermore, that the men of the great assembly were responsible for organizing the oral Torah as we know it. We explained in our class a couple weeks ago on the oral Torah that it had originally been taught to the people by Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he taught the Torah to the people. Later, he gave them the written Torah, where all the teachings of the oral Torah can be found cryptically. From that time on, while the, most of the Torah that was studied was the oral Torah, it was studied using the written Torah as a textbook. In other words, they would study, read the uh, uh, verse of the written Torah, and then they would discuss all of the traditions that were relevant to that verse, um, or whose hidden meaning can be found in that verse. But the written, because the written Torah follows the chronology of the story of the people through the Exodus and their travels through the desert and other orders, the laws of the written Torah are not in any particular order or well organized. Over time, as more laws were applied, case law, um, the oral Torah expanded, new rabbinic law was enacted, the Torah had grown. And so by the days of the men of the great assembly, some 15, uh, some sorry, um, some 800 years or 900 years after Moses, the Torah had, the oral Torah had greatly expanded with all of the case law that had accumulated over 900 years and much rabbinic law that had been enacted. And so the men of the great assembly began to organize the, Torah, the law by topic rather than just commentary on the written Torah. So they created a whole new system. They split the law into six orders. And then they split the topics into 60 different topics called Mesichtot. And these six orders and 60 topics would serve as the basis of the Mishnah, the first um, book written of the oral law, would be written along those six orders and 60 topics. And later the Talmud would serve as a commentary on the Mishnah, again following the same structure of law. So they created a new structure, a new order of the law. Later, new orders were created. Um, we no longer use the Talmud's order to organize the law, but they created an order that was used to organize the law um, for close to a thousand years. So in conclusion, we can say that Judaism, after the Great Assembly, looked very different from Judaism now. That's why, as we mentioned earlier, there was pre-Great Assembly Judaism and post-Great Assembly Judaism. Whereas the Midrash said, old Judaism and new Judaism. After the Great Assembly, we now have prayers, synagogues, blessings, rituals, the Tanakh, the Holy Scripture, an organized oral Torah, and that's in addition to the many, many takanot, the many, many um, rules um, or um, laws that the Great Assembly legislated. 
So they were truly a great assembly. They had a very, very great impact of Jude on Judaism. Judaism prior to Ezra, prior to the great assembly, would not be recognizable to Judaism today. It had changed so much due, uh, with the men of the great assembly. They made so many innovations, so many changes to Judaism that it had really, all through new legislation or finalizing things like Tanakh, um, which they were allowed to do as the Supreme Council of Judaism, they had made so many, such a great impact on Judaism was unrecognizable from the way it had been previously. Our, indeed, as the Talmud said, we quoted earlier, had the Torah not been given by Moses, it could have been given by Ezra. His impact had been so great. However, the Talmud asks, why was the great assembly, the Knesset HaGadola, called great assembly, Gadola? Why was it great? What was so great about it? The Talmud said it is not because it was larger than a regular Sanhedrin, greater in number, 120 members as opposed to regular 71, and not because of the great innovations that they brought to Judaism. Rather, the Talmud says they were great for another reason. Shehichziru atara liyoshna. They returned the crown of God to its old place. They gave God back his crown. How so? So explains the Talmud that Moses in the Torah, when he speaks in Deuteronomy, he used three adjectives to describe God. Hakel, Hagodel, Hagiber, Vahanero. God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring. God is great, mighty, and awe-inspiring. However, later, the prophet Jeremiah, when he speaks to God and prays to God during the destruction of the first temple, the prophet Jeremiah addresses God as Hakel Hagodel Hagibar, the great, mighty God. But he took out the word Nora. He took out the word awe-inspiring. He said, God is no longer awe-inspiring because strangers are chirping in his temple. Where is the awe of God? The Babylonians have invaded Jerusalem, destroyed God's temple. Where is the awe of God? Where is the fear of God? Look what they're getting away with. He did not use the word Noah or inspiring to describe God. Later, Daniel, when he prays to God in exile in Babylon, he addresses God as Hakel Hagodim, the great God. Not only did he take out Nora or inspiring, he also took out the word Gibber, mighty. He said, strangers are enslaving God's children and you call him mighty, where is his might? And so Jeremiah, Daniel, many other Jews presumably, had a problem with Moses' descriptions for God. Jews in exile, where is the awe of God? How do these terrible people get away with what they're doing? Where is the might of God? Why is he letting them harm his, his children? 
However, in the book of Nehemiah, in the Amana, in the document of faith that Nehemiah describes, when they address God in that document, they address God as Hakel Hagodel Hagiber Vahanera, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God. They address God with all three terms. They not only call God great, God is also mighty. God is also awe-inspiring. How so? How is God still mighty? How is God still awe-inspiring? The Talmud explains. This is God's might. He, this is his strength. He, even though people are doing so much bad, he holds back. And although he may be tempted to stop them, he does not. He is able to control himself. He has the self-discipline to allow people to do bad and doesn't stop them. That is God's great might. Why did they, why all inspiring? Because God's children have been in exile now for over 70 years and they had faced extermination and yet they survive. Time and time again, they rise up against them to try to destroy them. We still inspire, would they still survive? Is that not awe inspiring? Is that not Noira? And indeed, we know not only did they mention it in their document in, um, in the book of Nehemiah, but the men of the great assembly put those words, Hokel, Hagodel, Hagiber, Vanera, the great, mighty, and awe inspiring God, into our Shmona Esri, into our Amida, into the prayer that we say every single day, three times a day. The opening words of the prayer is, we say, Baruch Hashem, bless you, God, um, our God, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then we address God as, Hakel HaGadol HaGibar Vahanera, the great mighty, um, the great and mighty and awe-inspiring God. And so what is so great about the members of the great assembly, says the Talmud, not just, there were large numbers, 120 members, not just that they made so many new innovations to Judaism, legislated so many new rules that made Judaism unrecognizable, totally new. But what made them so great was they brought a zero atara liyoshna. They brought God's crown back, God's crown back by recognizing that even when Israel is in exile, even when bad people seem to be succeeding, even when God's children appear to be suffering, do not think that God's might is gone. Do not think that the awe of God is gone. To the contrary, that God's hand is there. Even in the worst of times, God is there with us. The fact that God doesn't punish them, that itself is a choice of God. God chooses sometimes to reasons known only to him that we can never fathom to let, the, to let bad people succeed and cause harm. That is God's might. And even when he got, we, his children, are suffering, know that that is God's awe. 
even as we suffer, we ask, where is God? We are still here. If we are still here, it can only be because God is with us. We don't know why we are suffering. We have no answer to that question. But yet there's no question that our survival can only be thanks to God. Where was God through all the terrible events that happened in our history, um, through all the pogroms, through the Holocaust, and so many other events? We don't know why God allowed it. We don't have the answer. But the fact that we're still here today, the fact that we survived it and continue to thrive, is that itself is all inspiring and evidence of God's greatness that he stands with his children and still does so till today. So that is the greatness of the men of the great assembly. I thank you for joining us. I apologize for going over time. Next week, we will talk about prayer at graves. Does Judaism allow us to pray at graves?